All right, hello everybody. Welcome to today's book of the day. I am here with a very special guest, Ryan Holiday. We're talking about this book, The Obstacle is the Way. So each person, you and I, uh, Ryan, your life, I guarantee you, will be full of obstacles. The great Charlie Monger says, you know, the, the self-made billionaire says, life will throw tremendous hurdles at you. It will throw, you know, the death of loved ones, the loss of business, the betrayal of friends, the betrayal of business partners. And uh, the difference is some people are entitled and they think that the world owes them. The world doesn't owe you anything, you know. The world, the sooner I realize that, uh, the better I've been able to cope with uh, the, the trials and tribulations that life throws at me. Not perfect at doing it, but this book is an amazing book. And whenever I see a book that's on this subject, I think, oh, it's just gonna be cliche. And I have to say, Ryan, this is a good book. And people who know me know that I don't always give, I don't give easy compliments. People who work for me really know that. But I do call a spade a spade, and this is a good book. So welcome to today's show. For those of you, make sure you buy this book. It's short and sweet and to the point. So uh, Ryan, thanks for being on today's show. Thank you, that's very kind. Yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, subtitled "The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph," and I know you write good books. I've read your other stuff, and when I saw that you wrote, you know, you're known as marketing genius, one of the uh, leaders in terms of understanding brands. You led the campaign for American Apparel, which has obviously turned into this monster fashion uh, brand, and so when I saw you writing a book on, you know, more philosophical, I was like, what angle is he going to come at this, you know? And you did what I think is the best angle. You went back to basics. You go back a couple thousand years and go, what have humans been saying about obstacles? What, by the way, what made you write this? You know, you say here at the beginning, let me, so if somebody hasn't followed up or read this book before, you talk about the saying, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And that's kind of the premise of this book. What, what made you write a book about obstacles? Was it because you felt you'd overcome obstacles or you just saw this was the never ending cycle of human life? We accomplish, well, then we fail. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I set out to write a book about Stoic philosophy, which is something I, I, like, I love to read I was. I asked a smart person when I was like 19 years old, like, what's a book I should read? They told me to read The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which sort of became like the, you know, I feel like everyone has like that one book that changed their life. It's, it's, it's their book and they read it constantly. And that was it for me. And so this book is, is based on a single passage from Marcus Aurelius. It's that quote you just said, the impediment to action advances action, which stands in the way becomes the way. And it, it was something that I... I, when I read it when I was 19, I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. But I, it was something that I came to over and over again in my life. Whenever I would have a problem, I would try to think of that idea. So, so stoicism was this, is the philosophy that I try to live my life by. I've gotten a lot of value out of it, and I wanted to sort of pay that forward. And so when I, when I was looking for the best way to write about stoicism, I realized, like, look, most people don't, like, you love to read, so you'd read an interesting book about philosophy, like, because you, you get why that's valuable, but most people wake up and, and they think, look, I have problems, how can you help me with them? And I wanted to, 
I wanted to approach Stoic philosophy from that angle rather than saying like, hey, check out this ancient book that I'm in love with. Right. Yeah, people, you know, one of my favorite authors of all time, one of the great authors of all time, Will Durant, he won a Pulitzer Prize. And he says, uh, speaking, if somebody's listening and doesn't know what Stoicism is, I won't try to completely explain it, but in layman's terms, uh, I'll tell you what Will Durant said. He said, a great nation is born Stoic and dies Epicurean. So a great nation is born of pe from people who are willing to put in the hard work. They're willing to grind. If you look at the story of any great country, whether it be, you know, any time in history, let's just take, I live in California, so we'll take the United States. The first people came to the United States were willing to, you know, build log cabins. They were willing to endure famine to survive for this great hope. And they were willing to wake up at four in the morning and go to bed at nine o'clock. And now we live in a world that would be classed more, more Epicurean, where we have luxuries and and people, I had a girl not too long ago tell me she was super depressed, and I said, why? And she says, because uh, I can't afford a boob job. So her biggest <laughs> trauma in life was not where she would eat her next meal or how she would survive the winter. It was some you know, minor enhancement. And so epi Epicureanism, which is a little bit hard to explain, but that's a simple, whenever I bring these up, inevitably some person who thinks they read a few books on philosophy said, no, Ty, you're not defining it right. First of all, there's no exact definition yeah. because they're dead. But the point is, you wrote a book saying, instead of us only looking at luxuries and how we can switch from hardship to luxury, learn to love the grind. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and look, Stone philosophy, like it, you use America as an example, like Stone philosophy is not, that's not just like a metaphor. I mean, uh, George Washington put on a play uh, about one of the Stoics, Cato, as, as he was camping at, at Valley Forge. A lot of the great lines, the uh, like, give me liberty or give me death. I regret that I, I have only one life to give to my country. These are lines paraphrased from Joseph Addison's Cato, one, again, about one of the great Stoics. And I think uh, Jefferson died with a copy of, of Seneca on his nightstand in the French. You know, George Washington read, read Marcus Aurelius and, and, and Epictetus when he was a young boy. But Stoicism is uniquely linked to the American Revolution. It's linked to the American Civil War. It's linked to Vietnam. It's linked to the, the many of the great events in American history. Um, because Stoicism is this idea of taking, taking reality on reality's term and making it into what you want it to be, rather than what I think you see a lot of times in modern life, which is, People complaining about how things are and feeling entitled to something better, but maybe not actually willing to do the work in uh, the, the work to make it so. Yeah, you have a good story here that I like. I'll share. There's a story of Reuben Hurricane Carter. So he was a, a boxer, pretty successful middleweight uh, contending uh, or a top contender for the middleweight title in the 1960s. He was wrongly accused of a triple homicide, went on trial this biased, you know, kangaroo court, puts him in jail, three life sentences. And what I thought was interesting, so he goes into prison, he says to the warden, uh, I know you had nothing to do with this injustice that brought me to this jail, so I will, I'm willing to stay here until I get out. But I will not, under any circumstances, be treated like a prisoner because I am never, because I am not and never will be powerless. And then he goes in here, and for 19 years in his cell, he studies 
the law and he goes through two courts and he's finally found, uh, he's, it was found that he was wrongly convicted. He's let out and what you say, what, what I love in the book this is on page 20, if somebody has the book, he said he simply resumed his life when he walked out. No civil suit. He did not even request an apology because to him that would imply that he had taken something of his that he was owed, but that had never been his view. Let's talk about that. People, the second you and I take this feeling that we're owed something, then everything offends us because everything people do uh, or every sickness that we have, it's going, wait, I'm owed a perfect life. And this Carter uh, said, I'm not owed anything, so I'm just going to plow away, go through life as it comes to me. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, Viktor Frankl talks about this in his book, too. He's saying, like, we always, no matter how heinous or awful situation we are in, we always retain the ability to tell ourselves what it means to us. And so, um, you know, no one would say that, that Reuben Carter enjoyed being uh, in prison. In fact, he spent every waking minute that he had fighting this injustice, but he also wasn't going to allow it to change him as a person, and he wasn't going to resign himself to this um, th this fate in any in any way because he he re he always retained his the ab the ability to to choose and decide his own attitude, and I think that ironically that's like the one thing that's totally in our power, but it's the thing we give up most readily, right? It's like something goes wrong, so we have to be mad about it. Someone says something offensive, offensive to it, us, we have to be hurt by it. You know, uh, we fail, we have to be crushed by it. Um, and, and these are choices just like anything else. They're, of course, very difficult choices. And, and I like to use the example like Carter because, you know, the fortitude and perseverance that he was required to, 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 to have to get through his situation sort of far outweighs what most of us hopefully are ever going to be called on to do. But I like to think about that when I'm like caught in traffic or, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a crappy client or I'm stuck, you know, putting up with some situation that I shouldn't have to put up with. It's this idea of like, I decide what this means to me. Like I always retain the power to decide what this is going to be in my life. And the Stoics would say, you know, you should choose for it to be, um, an opportunity you should choose for it to be a ultimately to be a positive in in some form and and i i find that attitude to be not only deeply admirable and and brave but also very inspiring yeah i always think of the example uh, of helen keller so helen keller is born normal at birth then about 18 months in she gets a super high fever and she goes you know she loses her eyesight, she can't hear, she can't speak. And I tell my friends that I look in the mirror and tell myself, I'm like, she still wrote books, more books than all of us. And uh, yeah. she's still remembered for two centuries. So would that be an example of somebody who goes, I've been dealt uh, a hand of cards that I had, you know, she was 18 months old, nothing she could have done. She then says, this obstacle, my blindness, my, you know, my handicaps, now become the way. My path in life is now to invent Braille, which she pretty much pioneered Braille. She pioneered all of these uh, rights for people who are handicapped and so on. So that becomes her destiny. Because everybody in the world always asks me, Ty, what's my destiny? As if destiny is completely something that you arbitrarily pick or is chosen for you. It's really 
a combination of the fate you have and things outside of your control, but then being like Helen Keller and going, I'm gonna go down this path and this is my way. I, I totally agree with that. And look, I think it's really easy to, to get very sort of quaint and superficial about it in that you don't want to gloss over the, the, the suffering and, and strength that someone like that had. But it's like, what, like, so she loses her eyesight and, and, uh, and, and her hearing, but what, so what is the deprivation, what perspective does the deprivation of those senses providing for her? I think that's so impressive too. It's like, it, is the empathy and the, the wisdom that she was able to pass on to humanity not a direct result of the um, unique combinations of factors that made, made this thing? And look, there's plenty of other people who've had the same disabilities as, as her and, and, and will, you know, will unfortunately into the future, but not everyone becomes Helen Keller, and it's not no. random luck that, that, that makes someone like that. It's, it's the decision to 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 persevere and to and to not to not be sort of overwhelmed by the you know the vasectitudes of fate. Now, an example: a lot of people that follow these podcasts are entrepreneurs or, or want to make more money. A good example you give in this book is the story of Rockefeller. So Rockefeller, you know, the 1800s, before he's the wealthiest man in the world. He goes in, sets out on his path, he's making some money, these huge depressions hit, multiple ones in his lifetime, about three. You know, I always tell people that are thinking that this is the end of the world. I, I'm, right now I'm getting a lot of emails, people going, do you think that a recession is coming? And I always answer, of course it is. The nature of capitalism is economic cycles and no one's been able to stop them. So Rockefeller goes through three cycles, I think, one was in the 1850s. I forget when it were, but obviously he lived all the way to 1929, the big stock market right. crash. And he goes, at every turn, he gets excited. It, it, and you mentioned one of my favorite guys, Warren Buffett. He says, you know, be fearful when everybody's excited and excited where everybody is fearful. So there's an example. A man, he goes, all right, right now, nobody has money because everybody's broke and running around like a chicken with their head cut off. So now's the time for me to buy up lots of stuff. And he buys these oil wells uh, and, and he's on his path to becoming you know, one of the wealthiest. I think if I read in today's dollars, he had $600 billion. So he's richer than Sam Walton, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, Bezos, all wrapped into one double. And that was from- Yeah, well, you never had to pay income tax. Yeah, that helped. He did, they did a few things you can't do nowadays. But yeah. how do you see that with making money and in, as you as an entrepreneur, um, do you still take that approach yourself? You go, okay, 2008, yeah. crash, let's I, go. I mean, it, it's funny, I think, you know, you saw, you see, you, the, the perception of someone like Rockefeller is this sort of greedy risk taker that gets lucky. And of course, that's actually not it. He was this immensely disciplined, almost like highest individual um, like, I don't think he really read much philosophy, but he, he's deeply stoic. Like when you, uh, one of my favorite books is, is Ron Chernow's bio of, of Rockefeller. It's, um, Titan, but yes. like every night he would like repeat to himself, like you think you're a big shot, but you're not like, you know, make sure you're not losing your head. Don't get prideful. Like you got to be careful. But what he saw, like, so the, the first economic crisis that he was in was, was, uh, was, was, uh, right after the civil war. 
and um, no, Panic of eighteen fifty seven. So right yeah, before the Civil War, yep. and he he it, it originated in the state that he lived in. It was in Ohio, which is which was at that point the sort of major economic center in the United States. And like instead of scaring him, he sort of saw it as this chance to like to study the market at its worst. And it was it was this deeply impression impressionistic period in his life because he saw what happens when investors get irrationally exuberant and when they lose sight of the the true value and and true economies of the industry that they're in and so when everyone is is speculating you know he's he's uh he's not when everyone is freaking out and undervaluing stocks that's when he's going on buying sprees and he made most of his money in these big economic crises because everyone else would get caught you know with their pants down and and he wouldn't. And so I, and he actually says that the panic of 1857 is this apprenticeship that he's really grateful <laughs> for. And so, um, you know, in, in my, uh, in my own life, like I graduated or I dropped out of college right into the financial recession, um, which was, which could have been this deeply scaring event. But for me, it was like, wait, here are all these people who are supposed to know what they're doing. You find out actually they have no idea what they're doing. And it's in these moments of flux, of flux that, you know, people can actually really jump ahead in line and skip some of the sort of traditional way. Like, you know, now the economy is, is obviously we've had some trouble recently, but the economy is pretty good. There seems to be a, a decent engine. Now it's harder to get a job in, in some ways because there's more competition and, oh, yeah. and, and people, people feel like they can be more choosy. When, when I started, it was like, hey, look, shit's falling apart. We got to try something new. We, who, let's take a chance on this kid. And so I really like to seize those moments. And I think Rockefeller is a great example of someone who did that. I'll read you one of the great quotes on this. Uh, people know WhatsApp was sold for uh, 20, what was it? 18 to $22 billion. And he wrote yeah. a uh, rejection tweet. So this is a great, for all of this goes right with what your book says. So he had uh, been laid off. So here's a tweet that he wrote in 9.14 in the morning, August 3rd, 2009. Brian Acton wrote this. So he, he went on after this to f- co-found uh, WhatsApp. And I think he's worth 6 to $10 billion. So this is his tweet. Facebook turned me down. It was a great opportunity to connect with some fantastic people looking forward to life's next adventure. So you got a guy here who is laid off from Yahoo, goes to try to get a job at Facebook, lay it, uh, not, he's turned down, and then he goes, but his approach is the obstacle being, being laid off and not getting the job is the way to life's next adventure, which was a very wealth-producing adventure. We all hope to go on an adventure like that, but he was a bit of stoic. Uh, stoic he, was, he had a stoic yeah. approach. Yeah, t- totally. And actually, when I was researching the book, because this was closer to the the crisis than it is, you know, now. But I was reading some study by the Kauffman Foundation, and they were talking about, like, in every economic crisis, there's the emergence of this class of people that they call necessity entrepreneurs. Okay. So they're people who get fired or laid off from their job or industry, can't get rehired, and then are forced to do the thing that they've always put off doing, whether it's opening a coffee shop or starting a, you know, a banking business or, you know, uh, uh, whatever, whatever they end up doing, but they were too afraid or too comfortable to do before, they have to do now to survive. 
And so in a weird way, these, these sort of moments can, can, can be pivotal, pivotal, sorry, pivotal improvements in your life, provided that you don't become, you don't see them as being terrible calamities and you don't uh, dwell on, on what they could mean. You decide to make them mean something good. Now let's switch gears here in your book chapter, uh, well, it's on page 27. Control your emotions. So all of us, I think anyone listening, you and I, we have this understanding that yes, it's better to turn lemons into lemonade to use a cliche. But I was just interviewing um, a guy, Professor uh, uh, Ledoux. So he's an NYU professor. He wrote a book called Anxious. It's on the brain. He's one of the top scientists in the world on the brain. And he says, so I asked him a question. I said, uh, can we use logic to overcome our emotional centers of our brain. So those areas, uh, those primitive brain areas like the medulla, the pons, all this part of our brain that's more primitive versus our neocortex, our more logical parts. And that's obviously an oversimplification of the brain, but just go with me here. He said, no, you cannot do it. The, you can't, well, let me step back. He said, you can't turn off the primitive brain. But obviously people like Helen Keller, people like Brian Acton, they, live by the logic that says, think this through. You're in prison like this boxer. You're in prison, think it through. Do the work, get yourself out of here. What are your thoughts on controlling emotions be so that we can actually do what all of us wish we could do, which is be tough in the face of adversity? Totally. Um, so I, I think a couple things. So one, um, I like to say like, look, if you get in a car accident and you, you walk out of the car you're going to be, you're, your body's going to be pumping hormones and, and, and adrenaline into your system, and that's going to make you react a certain way, right? That's kind of outside your control. You can't just willfully decide not to be scared or shaken up by a car, right? Um, but you do decide whether you're going to get in a car again, or you do decide whether you're going to get out and start screaming and yelling at the other driver, uh, or you're going to let this sort of event ruin your life. You decide those things. So, like, I want to make a distinction between the sort of immediate emotions that you might feel when someone stabs you with a knife and the emotions that you might feel, um, you know, about your boss who's been treating, treating you shitty or about um, and any number of other situations that can provoke an emotional reaction. And then that being said, of, of course we have the ability to, um, to, to think through and work on our emotions. Just, Someone decides whether they're going to react jealously to uh, their wife or their girlfriend. Someone is going to decide whether, you know, some, someone saying something offensive to them is going to get them upset or not. We have that ability. And not only do we have that ability, there's plenty of things that we can do to increase that ability. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, which um, helps people deal with traumas and patterns of behavior in their life. It's actually rooted in philosophy. Um, and it's this, it's this idea of really what, it's like, this trigger happens and I tend to react this way. Stepping back and looking at your behavior in your life and saying, look, is this the reaction that I want? Is this the reaction that's making my life better? And if the answer is no, it's starting to look for the warning signs or the, the, the sources of those triggers and making changes in your life and in your behavior um, to eliminate or, or to, to decrease your reliance on these patterns. And so that, that's more what I'm thinking about. It's like, look, 
um, you something happens, there's a stimulus, and then there's the response. But in between there, um, there is a there is a choice about whether you're going to give in to that response or not. Whether you're going to whether you're gonna and and it's like look, you might start saying something, but you can always stop yourself halfway through. That's sort of what I look at um, controlling your emotions about. And I, I use in the book, I use the example of the, the Apollo astronauts. They realize that if you put a human in a small metal container and throw it into space, they're likely to panic, um, especially when things go wrong. And that's about the absolute worst thing that you could have that, that could happen. Uh, there's a great quote from uh, Chris Hadfield, the, the Canadian astronaut. And he has this line, he's like, there's no problem in space that humans cannot make worse. And um, I try to think about that in my life. It's like, is my reaction here, the emotion that I'm feeling, whether that's hurt or frustration or pain or, or anything, and, and whatever the reasons are, my childhood or my, the fact that I haven't eaten enough today or whatever, is, is that emotion going to make this situation better or worse? And the more often you can stop yourself from making it worse, the more effective and, and efficient you're going to be. Yeah, I just saw last night that there's a movie, what was it called, No Escape? It, bold films, they're the ones that did Whiplash and stuff, and, and uh, friends of mine, and they, and they put out this new movie with Owen Wilson. It's, it's a pretty good movie. Uh, and it's the story of, you know, they're in this country and there's a riot and they get caught in the middle of it. And you say in the book here, talking about Rockefeller, he had unflappable coolness under pressure. And I had not too long ago, uh, Michael Jordan's psychologist uh, came for lunch, George Mumford, who now coaches the, uh, is the psychological counselor, a psychologist for the New York Knicks. And I asked him about working with Michael Jordan for a decade. And I said, we're in the elevator. And I said, what do you remember about Michael Jordan? What, what made Michael Jordan better than everybody? Why is he the greatest of all time? And he said, Ty, eye of the hurricane. I said, what do you mean? He said, the more the storm brewed around Michael Jordan, the cooler he got. And, and you put this quote here in the book. You said, uh, uh, but even as a young man, Rockefeller had sang Freud, unflappable coolness under pressure. He could keep his head while he was losing his shirt. Better yet, he kept his head while everyone else lost theirs. It's like that uh, Rudyard Kipling if. Uh, famous yeah. poem. It says, "If you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs, you know, then you'll be a man, my son." And uh, that is that—that's kind of, you know, maybe to sum up your book as we kind of close up here. To me, the there are so many good points in this book, but the strongest is I, I put a little meme out on my social, my Instagram and stuff, and it just said greatness, and then it had the equal sign, coolness under pressure. Helen Keller, what yep. makes her great? You're born, you're blind, deaf, mute, and you're still great because you were cool, you didn't, I like what you said. Will my reaction make it 10 times worse? I think when you, th that's probably the best way, I've, I've never heard it put like that, I like that. Yeah, and there's a great quote from, from Theodore Roosevelt about that, where he's like, look, what, what, a, what a man needs is, is, is uh, coolness under pressure, he needs that, that sort of nerve control. And I, I see that as the same way, it's like, Controlling your emotions is, is one thing, and I think another big part of it is that just not getting intimidated, not getting freaked out, you know, when, when uh, you know, someone tries to intimidate you, uh, when it looks like the market's dropping precipitously, 
when it looks like you know your your book is going to get rejected or the sales numbers don't come in it's like are you going to freak out and make it worse or are you going to are you going to stay in control and and be in control of those those sort of anxious nerves that that don't that don't usually make things any better yeah and if you possess that ability to, it's really the ability to flip perspectives on their head so you know i can think of times in my life uh when I was sleeping on a couch, you know, I had 47 bucks in my bank account, no college degree, no, no car, lost touch with all my friends. I lived on a farm for 10 years, kind of lost touch with the modern world. I tried to come back in and I remember thinking, this is the end. And uh, I bumped into a book by Tony Robbins, uh, I think it was The Awaken, The Giant Within. And I remember only one sentence from it. He said, when you succeed, you party. But when you fail, you ponder, and all greatness comes from pondering. Yeah, that's great. Well, awesome. I, and I, oh, go ahead. And, and look, it's like if you if you had lost your control, like your sort of your sense of self and control at that moment, and you'd taken some crappy job, or you join the army, or you know any one of the things that we do sort of out of an emotional response, let's say, because we we gave up faith in our our ability to turn this thing around, who knows where your life would have ended up. Yeah, I think it, it is, you know, the great Friedrich Nietzsche, what he said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Now, I a little bit don't agree with that because there are things, um, I'm, and I'm somewhat on the fence, maybe we'll close with your thoughts on this. So I think there one danger that comes from this is going, when I hear people say, Ty, I, I, perfect example, a guy wrote me an email not too long ago. He said, Ty, I was homeless and I got my way out of it. I, I made money, I got, I got a nice house, I rose out of the trial and tribulation. Then I went back, I messed everything up, went, became homeless again. He said three times and I told him, my friend, this is not stoicism, this is stubbornness. And so I think there's a danger, yeah. you know, there are things that they won't kill you, but they'll make you weaker. And so I think there's a balance between learning the hard way and then, you know, being stoic and rising out of it and avoiding the problems to start with. Because like Warren Buffett says, we only learn from mistakes, but they don't have to be ours. You can learn from the mistakes of other people. So how do you think we balance this so we don't just become stoic machines and just let ourselves fall into all kinds of trial and then console ourselves by saying, well, this is making me stronger. Because you'll waste 20 years of your life that you could have done great things, you know? Yeah, no, there's a, there's a great quote from Bismarck, too, where he's saying, like, any fool can learn by experience. Like, I prefer to learn from the experience of others. Um, I, I think, yeah, you see this sort of rags to riches to rags story, and it's like, wait, did you learn anything the first time around? Like, stoicism is is not just the ability to bounce back from bad things. It's also this sort of conservatism and discipline and self-control that makes, that, that should, if working properly, make you much more robust and immune to those sort of catastrophic failures in the first place. Now, like let's say this guy had worked his way up and then, then he was wrongly thrown in jail and then he worked his way up and then his house was destroyed by lightning or something. That's different, but... You know, it tends to be that, um, you know, you see these people and you're like, are you not noticing or evaluating the, the, the kinds of behaviors that seem to be leading you back into these situations? You, didn't, you, you might have found yourself on a couch and, 
and you were able to, to persevere and, and turn things around. But you now you are living your life and thinking about if doing it properly, you're like, how can I make sure that I never end right. up on a couch again? You might not be afraid if that ever happens. Like, you know, the Stoics were very big on unpredictability. The Roman world was, was capricious and volatile, and an emperor could steal everything that you own and, and, and send you, you know, send you off into the, to the wilderness. Um, but, and, and so maybe that could happen and you would be able to deal with that. But it's like, how do I make sure that I'm not the source of my own misfortune? I think that's very critical to stoicism. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, miss that or ignore that sort of discipline and self-control and, 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 and robustness that, is very much a part of the philosophy and, and cannot be ignored. Yeah, Warren Buffett says, remember, you only have to get rich once. So he says he sees people get right. rich, then they try to get even richer and they lose it all. He's like, just get rich one time. And then you learn, you, you, you earned your stripes and then hold on to what you have. Don't make big mistakes. Well, awesome, thanks so much. We're gonna record some, uh, some segments for people in the private accelerator. I wanna talk about money, we're gonna talk about entrepreneurship, and obviously one of the things you're known for among many things, which is your genius at marketing. So if you're in the accelerator, the business one, make sure to check those out. Now, this book, The Obstacle is the Way, make sure you pick up this book. What other books should they get that you've written or are writing? You have Trust Me, I'm Lying, that's kind of your bestseller that, that kind of got you on the map, I think. What else are you working on? Uh, so I, I'm working on two more books for Penguin, which I, I can't totally talk about yet. I would more urge people, like, read my book or read. I, I really love the, the Gregory Hayes translation of Marcus Aurelius. It's the book that somebody pressed into my hands and changed my life, and I, I try to sort of recommend it to as many people as I humanly can as a, as a form of gratitude. Now, if they want to reach you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Twitter, email? Yeah, Twitter is uh, at Ryan Holiday. My website's ryanholiday.net, and my email is just ryanholiday.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you being Thank on you. the show.